listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Land. Unfortunately, there's really no other better way to learn antibiotics other than to literally just rote learn it. General principles in terms of empirical antibiotics, i.e. the prescribing of antibiotics before you get the cultures and sensitivities back, is the following. Multiple narrow spectrum antibiotics is better than giving one broad spectrum antibiotic in terms of minimizing the chance of resistance. Okay, that is the key take home point. Does everybody get that? Mm -hmm. Okay. There are certain exceptions to the rule. Uh, and if anybody saw the Insta post, you might know these already, but does anybody want to yell out any of the exceptions to the narrows are better than one broad principle? It's like anaphylaxis. Yes. No, <laughs> if they get anaphylaxis to that narrow spectrum, don't give it. Exactly. Yeah. Is it like a really unwell person? Fantastic. So if it's a Met call, you'll find they won't sit around going, let's give all these narrow spectrum antibiotics. Who's been to a Met call? Who, who's seen them give antibiotics in the Met call? What do you see them given? A good example would be somebody with febrile neutropenia. So somebody who's come in uh, and they're septic, they've got no immune system because of the cancer and the chemo, uh, and you just have to assume they have, like, you know, it's a critical situation. Yes. And you... Yes, Pipicillin, Tazobactam combination, oh, yes. which is called Tazacin. Who's seen them give Tazacin in the Met call? They're like, oh, they're literally dying in front of them. They've got, like, septic shock. Hell, let's just give them Tazacin because if we guess wrong, yeah, they, they won't have time to develop resistance because they'll be dead. Very good. So, anaphylaxis, critically unwell person. Is that what yes. Yeah. Fantastic. So, medical contraindication, which we'll come to later. What are some of the reasons why, if the person has got this normally, you probably shouldn't give this? Okay. So, we'll talk about that in a bit. And then, what's the other one? Which is a bit harder to conceptualize slash explain. Uh, it's basically when there's just no other elegant way to cover all the common organisms because there are that many multiple common organisms that might cause that kind of infection. And rather than just putting somebody with 10 different tablets, there's no other way to do it other than just give one broad spectrum. Okay? So let's start with our gram positives. What two most common gram positive bugs do you know of? Staph and strep. Staph. Where does it live normally when it's not causing anybody any problems? <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So therefore, what kind of infections, if you use the rule of virulence, which is it's going to infect like the body parts closest to it, if it normally lives on people's skins, what kind of infection does it normally cause? Like a cellulitis. Yes. Cellulitis, skin infections, specifically... Um, like impetigo. Impetigo, fantastic. And infected wounds. So if you've got an infected wound, it's usually going to be staph, okay? Does anybody know off the top of their heads the rote learnable first line empirical therapy for staph? Flu clocks. Flu clocks, fantastic. Does that come in oral or IV or both? Both. Fantastic. So it's an easy job. Literally, anytime you're thinking staph, give flu clocks, okay? What if it's resistant staph? So before we go too much more into that, what clues would you get if you don't have a sensitivity or cultures back that somebody might be having a MRSA infection as opposed to a sensitive staph? Like a diabetic with cellulitis. Yeah. That's a fair point. So certainly people who are immunocompromised tend to get them more because they've been on that many antibiotics for that many recurrent infections that nothing else works anymore. Having said that, that's sort of a relative scenario because it's not like every diabetic you just treat for MRSA until proven otherwise. Uh, but good thought. They've already had like a seven day dose of... Yes. Non-response to flu clocks. 
Okay, that's actually a pretty common scenario because, and again, sorry, I've jumped ahead. One of the general rules as well is you should always, when possible, get the septic screen off before you start the first dose of antibiotics because if you don't get the cultures off before you start the antibiotics, the antibiotics might skew your sensitivity results because it's already burned off some of the bacteria. Having said that, you have to use your common sense. So coming back to our scenario, there'll be some scenarios, that crashing patient with septic shock in that met call, you're not going to say, wait, 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 let me just wait till he urinates and then we'll start the anti-life-saving antibiotics. No, you're just going to have to start it and oh well, they're just going to have to deal with it later. However, you should always, where possible, tell the patient, all right, I'm giving you this antibiotics, but can you at least, you know, get the urine sample off before you start the first dose for your UTI, something like that, okay? You'd be surprised at how many doctors don't do that you know, four minute medicine. Oh, you come in. Oh, you got this. You, you know, here, just take take the antibiotics and get out of my sight. And I've made no follow up plan, and I haven't swabbed it. And then they'll come back, but not to them because they got bad service. They'll come back to you, and they'll be like, "I'm not better. What should I do now?" And you're like, "Damn it! Nobody even did a swab. And if they had, I would give you exactly the right answer right now." Uh, so it's actually quite a common scenario where you know you have somebody who's tried flu clocks for two or three days, and it's made no difference whatsoever. Then have a low threshold for thinking it's MRSA and treating accordingly. So that's one scenario. What's the other scenario that might make you think, oh, I wonder if this is MRSA or, you know, that something that might be elicited in the patient's history. It might make you think, oh, yes, exactly. A weird quirk of infectious diseases is if you grow one bug previously with certain a lot of sensitivities, you tend to grow that. If you get that infection again, you tend to grow the same bug with the same sensitivities again. It's just a weird quirk of infectious diseases. So if they get recurrent MRSA cellulitis, you can pretty safely assume that it's going to be MRSA cellulitis again, so treat them accordingly. Okay? Now that we've talked about the general principles of MRSA, does anybody know off the top of their heads what we treat empirically MRSA with? Very good. Does that come oral, IV, or both? So, you're right. Technically, it does come in both. Yes, correct. Correct. I, I can't... It's something to do with gut science bioavailability, whatever they call it. But for whatever reason, oral vancomycin essentially doesn't exist except for the treatment of um, confirmed C. diff. That's right. So let's just say for all intents and purposes, uh, vancomycin only comes IV. So if that's the case, if you feel like, oh, this person's got a cellulitis in their foot, they keep growing MRSA uh, in the past, I think it's MRSA again, but I don't think it's so bad that they need to go to hospital. Their CRP is only like, you know, 14. What would you give them while you're waiting for sensitivities? Let's just say for whatever reason, you don't have access to their previous sensitivities, so you don't know, so you still have to guesstimate. What would you give them, anybody? A MacBook. Yes. Such as? What are, what are the macrolides? Yes, yes. So what myosins do you know? Clarithromycin. Clarithromycin, erythromycin. Absolutely. So that would be reasonable to start them straight off the bat on oral erythromycin. What's the other common one that you can use to treat uh, MRSA? I mean, by definition, MRSA has, is multi-resistant. So, you know, you might not have much luck and you might have to wait for sensitivities anyway. But what's the other reasonable choice for oral? For an MRSA infection. So, yeah, let's say such as the cellulitis. That's not broad spectrum? No, narrow spectrum and oral. Trimethoprim, weirdly enough. And I say weirdly, which we'll go into in the next part of the conversation. But yeah, because you wouldn't think logically that that would work uh, for reasons that we'll discuss. But that's the other one. So MRSA, just wrote learn if they don't need IV antibiotics. Sorry, I've skipped ahead again. So IV 
antibiotics, just like all medications, IV works better and quicker than oral. Okay, so the decision uh, regarding do I treat them with IV antibiotics or oral antibiotics is basically, well, how sick do I think they are and how quickly do I want them to get better? So basically, MRSA, if you're treating with oral because you don't think they're that sick, try oral trimethoprim or oral erythromycin until you get the sensitivities back. If they are sick, IV vancomycin. Very good. So that's staph. The other common gram-positive, as we said, was strep. Where does strep live normally when it's not causing anybody problems and not an active infection? Yeah, in, the, in people's throats. Absolutely. So again, principles of virulence, it's going to infect stuff nearby. So what body parts does it commonly infect and cause an acute infection? Strep in your throat. Tonsils? Yes, ears, tonsils, so ENT tract. Mm -hmm. And lungs. That's right. And if you think about it, that's actually pretty logical because if it goes too far upwards, it's going to go into your ENT. If it goes too far downwards, it's going to go into your lungs. So when you've got a pneumonia or an ENT infection and you don't know what to treat it with because you don't have sensitivities, uh, it'd be reasonable to assume that you're dealing with strep. Okay? So does anybody know off the top of their head what the gold standard learnable first line for strep infections is? Narrow spectrum. So, penicillin is the correct answer. FYI, but we'll go into this in a bit later in terms of the broad spectrum chat. Broad spectrums, you can basically learn the two most common ones are amoxicillin and the cephalosporins. Okay, so to that end, in terms of empirical therapy, the answer is rarely the first line is amoxicillin or cephalosporin, unless there's some other reason. Okay, the correct answer is penicillin. Very good. So, it's a narrow spectrum first line that kills off strep. Does it kill off every single variety of strep on the planet? So bizarrely, it actually does still touch wood. Give it time. We're terrible with resistance and prescribing, so give it time. But for now, in 2020, all penicillin will kill off all types of streptococcus. It's universally sensitive. So penicillin, does it come in oral or IV or both? Very good. Easy. So... Tonsillitis, therefore, if you've got acute bacterial tonsillitis, I mean, most tonsillitis is viral anyway, but if it's persisting, it's a bit pus-filled and maybe there's a low-grade fever as well or high-grade fever and you're thinking it's bacterial, what would you treat it with? Penicillin, that's right, yep. So oral or IV penicillin, depending on how bad the patient is. Very good. Incidentally, FYI, oral penicillin is called phenoxymethylpenicillin or penicillin V. They're the same thing. Yeah, for whatever chemical reasons, they're called different things based on the form. Uh, but FYI, when they talk about phenoxymethylpenicillin or penicillin B, they're talking about the same thing. They're just talking about oral penicillin. IV penicillin tends to be benzyl penicillin. There are other penicillins as well, but you're doing well if you can remember IV benpen, oral phenoxymethylpenicillin. Okay, let's take the lungs now. So acute bacterial pneumonia, uh, community acquired, mind you, hospital acquired is a bit of a different ball game. So we're mainly talking about community-acquired. What do we think is the most common bug that causes community-acquired pneumonia? Yeah. Streptococcus. Therefore, what do you think the empirical uh, therapy should be? <laughs> Fantastic, exactly right. Now this is where it gets a bit tricky. What is the second most common bug bacteria that causes community-acquired pneumonia? It's actually mycoplasma. Oh, really? The atypicals, yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. It's a misnomer. It's a misnomer. Atypical is misnomers. It turns out it ain't that atypical. Yeah. It's a historic term that comes from the days where we had 
PCR, so we couldn't find the damn thing. So there was this mythical, magical beast called mycoplasma that nobody could figure out. And now we can test for it, and now we can culture it. And so we actually have found out that it's actually like 30% of community-acquired pneumonias. Also atypical, the name sort of also encompasses the clinical presentation. It tends to be a mycoplasma community-acquired pneumonia versus a streptococcus one will be a bit more subacute. So it'll be a more of a lengthy course that's sort of brooding, but not actually giving you outright productive cough and high fevers and stuff like that. Also encompasses the radiological findings. So radiologically, it will be sort of a more patchy opacity on the x-ray as opposed to a nice, sexy, finite, low bar opacity. Yeah, with the streptococcus pneumonia. Okay. Anybody know off the top of their heads what we treat a mycoplasma with? Fantastic. Does it come IV or oral both? Oral, yes. No, unfortunately it doesn't come IV. So what IV options do you have to target atypicals like mycoplasma? Azithromycin, which is actually, I believe it's not that narrow. I believe it actually encompasses a reasonably broad spectrum. But you know, if you need to use it, you need to use it. If they're like really, really unwell with a community-acquired pneumonia and waiting for sensitivities, you need to use it. So just to recap, therefore, what do you think is the gold standard first-line therapy for community-acquired pneumonia that you've hospitalized? So not critically unwell. Who saw pneumonias admitted to the gen med ward when they worked on gen med? Yeah, what did everybody get pneumonia-wise? Doxy and Benpen. So if you look up ETG, it's reflective of that as well. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because you're targeting the strep and the mycoplasma. So you give them IV Benpen, 1.2 grams QID, and doxycycline, 100 milligrams oral BD. And like we said, that's better than giving a one broad spectrum antibiotic. This next bit is an exception to the rule and hell, you're just sorry, you're just gonna have to rote learn it. So actually, ironically though, the conversion of that to oral therapy for mild pneumonia is actually just oral amoxyl as a single agent, uh, which breaks the broad spectrum rule. Um, and my thoughts are that's probably just, there's no other elegant way to do that and cover for the things. Because obviously there's other things that cause community of acquired pneumonia, which we haven't talked about. And there's probably just no other elegant way to cover all those things with, with oral tablets without making your patient rattle. Okay. For severe, severe pneumonia, FYI, but we'll go into this a bit more with the cephalosporins, you actually give IV keftriaxone and IV azithromycin which again breaks the broad spectrum rule, but that sort of blends into the exception of, well, if they're that critically unwell, you don't want to guess wrong. So that's your gram positives. Let's move on to the gram negatives now. What is the most common gram negative bug that you've heard of? Very good. And where does that live when it's not causing anybody any problems? Very good. What adjacent body parts is it therefore going to infect and cause issues? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, and when they're talking about a UTI, specifically what body part are they commonly talking about? Just FYI. Uh, bladder, cystitis. I mean, yeah, probably urethra as well. That's probably how it cracked up there. But essentially by the time it causes symptoms, you're probably talking about it's infecting the bladder. So when you're talking about a cystitis, when you have a severe UTI, what body part are you essentially talking about as well? The kidneys. Yeah, that's right. You're talking about acute pyelonephritis essentially. Very good. So, E. coli, anybody know off the top of the head what we treat it with, narrow spectrum wise empirically? Trimethoprim, exactly right. Who's seen a patient with a UTI come to GP land, have a UTI, 
loot some dipstick, uh, and then go off with trimethoprim. You see that like daily, like multiple, multiple times a day. Very good. Trimethoprim, does it come oral, IV, or both? Unfortunately, it only comes oral. So therefore, if they're unwell with a presumed urosepsis is the buzzword, or pyelonephritis, or acute severe UTI, um, what do we end up giving them in hospital? Yeah, so gentamicin is a narrow spectrum, and it's fantastic. It's almost to the gram negatives, like what penicillin is to streps. Like there's pretty much almost nothing it can't kill. There, are, I think there are some resistant bugs that are now resistant to gent, unfortunately. But for all intents and purposes, gent pretty much kills everything gram negative. So it's fantastic. So if it's that awesome, why don't we use it more? Yeah, ototoxicity. And what's the other side effect? Nephrotoxicity. And the nephrotoxicity is a pain in the ass because it's a double whammy. Because it gets excreted by the kidneys as well. So if you have shit kidneys, you can't get rid of it properly. And the longer it stays in your system, the more ironically damaging it is to your kidneys. And it makes it all worse to the point you get like, you know, acute severe renal failure acidosis and you die. Uh, so unfortunately, there's, there's a fairly big reason why unfortunately you can't use it in every case, even though it's really, really good at what it does. Autotoxy is also a pain in the ass in the sense that it's unpredictable. So it's not dose dependent and it's not duration dependent. It's just kind of random. Although obviously a whole lot less common than your nephrotoxicity. So what can you do about it? Well, you can do the following. I would probably stay away from giving gentamicin to somebody who literally only, I don't know, lost an ear in a knife fight and also has really terrible hearing in that remaining ear. I probably wouldn't give them gentamicin uh, because I don't want to roll the dice on what little hearing they have left. But that's probably all you can do, unfortunately. With regards to the kidney failure part, that's a bit controversial and different clinicians will do different things. You'll see a lot of emergency physicians and ID physicians actually just give one stat dose of gent and that's okay. And I believe the evidence in the literature is uh, not that robust in saying somebody will get acute renal failure and die just after one dose of gentamicin. So I believe the literature seems to imply that the benefit of a stat dose of gent is generally outweighing the risks even if they have renal failure. Having said that though, there are other options and then we have to unfortunately use broad spectrums if we have to, if we're really worried about their kidneys. Just FYI, you'll have to check the jet dose after I believe it's like four days time or something like that, just to check that they're not super therapeutic and need uh, you know, a dose reduction or else you'll kill off their kidneys. Once you take that blood level off, the lab will put it into some computer algorithm and they'll tell you exactly what dose because other, uh, before that you've essentially done a bit of a generic dose based on weight, which isn't a one size fits all. One last other note on UTIs before we move on. If you look up the therapy in most hospital protocols and in therapeutic guidelines, it will actually say the gold standard for acute pyelonephritis is actually a MOX plus gent. The reason for that is while UTIs are like 90 or something percent caused by E. coli or gram negatives and the gent will kill it off, there is a small percentage that will be gram positive, like staph. People can get staph UTIs. It's uncommon, they're unlucky, but it does happen. And if they're that unwell with the pyelonephritis and you're worried about them getting urosepsis and dying, you don't want to guess wrong, so you have to have some sort of gram-positive coverage. Therefore, you would have thought, in terms of mitigating resistance, that it would have been flu clocks, hay, and um, gent. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. Because the protocol is definitely a MOX, which is a broad spectrum, admittedly. I suspect the reason is either number one, 
there must be gram-positive bugs that the flu clocks doesn't necessarily routinely cover or it was traditionally flu clocks but then resistance happened and now you know the sensitivities are generally changed in Australia therefore we do a mox I don't know the exact answer to it so essentially you're just going to have to rote learn that it's a mox and gent uh, but gent is the main force behind UTI killing moving on now so we've done our gram positives gram negatives uh, we've done our atypicals uh, so that probably just leaves the anaerobes and then we'll talk about some specific situations which you're just going to have to write learn. Okay, so anaerobes, what's the most common anaerobe that you probably would have heard of or come across? Clostridiums? Yes, C. diff, absolutely. Where does that live? Bowel. Yep. Adjacent body part wise, where does it infect? Bizarrely the bowel. C. diff colitis is probably its most common form. How do people get C. diff colitis? This will sort of explain why this happens. They get antibiotics and they lose all their gut bacteria. Absolutely. Because it doesn't otherwise make sense. Why would you get a bowel infection for something that leaves in your bowel? Well, the answer is because of change to natural flora. That makes it virulent. I had a case once. It was a guy that came in the emergency department. He was, I think, 60-odd, long-standing history of diverticulitis, says, I've come in to you because usually when I get my diverticulitis, my GP gives me Augmentin and I get better. But this time around, I've been taking Augmentin, 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 and I'm just not getting any better. And my diverticulitis is getting worse. That's why I need your help. What do you think actually was happening to him? Just destroying all his natural flora. Yeah! Yeah, absolutely. And then sure enough, the stool culture came back as C. diff positive. Anybody know off the top of head what you treat C. diff with? Oral vein, metronidazole, and then you can do like fecal transplant. Fantastic. Yes. So metronidazole. Does it come oral, IV? Comes both. Fantastic. Easy as. Has anybody been on the surgical unit and then the consultant turns around and is like, put them on triples. All right, I'm going to theater now. Put them on triples. And then I have to say what the triples are. What's triples? Metronidazole. Yep. Gentamice. Yep. And or pencil. Yeah, some pencil. Fantastic. That is exactly the right answer. Now, when do you when do you see triples given? Or what are you trying to Yeah, what, what are you trying to treat with triples? Commonly. I saw it like when they had appendicitis. Yeah, That's right, gut infections. Yeah. yeah, GI GI infections. Particularly when stuff has exploded. And stuff has gone everywhere because then quite literally the bowel can be quite frustrating like that because it will literally be anything. It could be the staph from the skin when you did the cuts. It could be the gram negative from the bowel. It could be the anaerobes from the bowel. It could be literally anything spilling into the perineum. So perineum, whoops, peritoneum, pardon me. Um, so therefore you have to cover all three bases. Okay. Uh, I suspect traditionally that was with flucloxacillin and gentamicin and metronidazole, so three narrow-spectrum antibiotics, but actually now the protocol is amox, gent, and metronidazole. So essentially when the boss says, put them on triples, they're just talking about starting them on IV amox, IV gent, and IV metronidazole to cover the three main schools of bugs. So let's talk about broad spectrums now, and then they'll probably finish off the chat for uh, antibiotics, okay? So like I said, the two most common groups of broad-spectrum antibiotics that you see in your life will be? Amox. Amoxicillin and? Kephlosporins, fantastic, okay? In terms of which ones to use, so amoxicillin is a penicillin in terms of its chemical makeup. It's like the cousin of penicillin, okay? Except it's got more broad coverage. By definition, broad spectrums will cover to certain degrees both the gram-positive and gram-negative. That's why it's a broad spectrum. The amoxicillin, though, 
will generally cover more gram positive ends of the spectrum and less gram negative ends of the spectrum because it's similar in its chemical makeup to the penicillin. If you wrote learn the following, you can't really go wrong. It's basically amoxicillin is first line for ear infections, bacterial otitis media. Again, most otitis media you'll just leave be because it's going to be viral, but if you're pretty concerned that it's bacterial, mainly because non-response to simple analgesics over the period of like two or so days, and if they've got a fever and stuff, I would start them on oral amoxicillin, 500 milligrams TDS. Okay? I suspect the reason why we're covering with that and just not straight up penicillin for streptococcus is because streptococcus, while it's still the most common bacterial cause of otitis media, there are other relatively common ones. So what are the three most common bacterial causes of otitis media? Yes, that's correct. Yep, that's correct. So hopefully the amoxicillin will keep things covered and there's probably not a more elegant way to do it, particularly because what population gets most bacterial ear infections? Children. It's kids. It's really hard to get antibiotics into kids. So can you imagine like getting like multiple narrows? Yeah. So I suspect that's the reason. Just FYI, as per the therapy guidelines, if you're not winning with amoxil, but you're still convinced it's a bacterial infection, what do you move on to? Augmentin. So the difference between amoxil and augmentin, augmentin is just the, the brand name for amoxicillin and clavulanic acid. So the only difference between the two of them is clavulanic so acid. That's right, which broadens its sensitivities. Yeah. It's, it's spectrum. And that's about the whole, um, like, the... Cell the, wall yeah, thing, the, thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay, good. Yes, correct. What's the difference between augmentin and augmentin duo fort? Is it dose? Yes. Anytime you see fort, fort is just French for max dose. It's not actually, but essentially just consider it as French for max dose. Amoxicillin is amoxicillin. Augmentin is... Amoxicillin plus the clavulanic acid. Confusingly, Augmentin is just the shortened way of saying Augmentin Duo. So the formal full brand name is Augmentin Duo. So Augmentin and Augmentin Duo is the same thing. People just abbreviate it. Augmentin Duo and Augmentin Duo Fort are separated by the dosing. Augmentin Duo Fort is just maximum dose Amoxil plus clavulanic acid, 870 milligrams slash 375 milligrams. Panadol is paracetamol. Panadine is Panadol plus codeine. Panadine Fort is max dose Panadol plus codeine. Other common scenarios where you'd use it first line is basically, so bacterial otitis media, mild community acquired pneumonia as essentially the oral conversion of IV Benpen plus oral doxy. So if you look at therapeutic guidelines, they say first line would be amoxil, and if that's not working, augmented. Same principle. Having said that, depends on who the respiratory specialist is looking after them. Some will just go straight for the augmented. The other common scenario is basically a dirty wound. Okay, so knife fight wound with a dirty knife that's been used to cut dirty chicken. I'd go amoxil off the bat instead of fluploxacillin tripped and fell over barbed wire and slashed your leg up with barbed wire, I would go on Moxil. There's gram negatives in the dirt. Dog bite, I'd go on Moxil. Human bite, definitely go on Moxil. The cephalosporins, let's talk about now. You're probably aware that there's three generations. Sorry, I lied. There's four generations now, isn't it? It's 2020. Um, what are the differences, practically speaking, between the four generations? And the answer is not generation four is better than generation one. 
It's just a spectrum of random, negative, positive. Yes, tell me more about that. So, first gems cover more positive, and the later you go, more negative colors. Right. Yes, correct. Okay, so by definition, they're all broad spectrum antibiotics. They will all cover a certain degree of gram positive and gram negative bacteria. The, gram, the first generations are very similar to the penicillin, so they will cover much more gram positives, much less gram negatives. The third and fourth generations will cover much more gram negatives and quite a bit less gram positives. Okay, let's go through specific examples now. What is pretty much the only first generation Kephlosporin that you'll still see in existence being used? Kephazole? Yes. Does it come IV or oral? No, it only comes IV, unfortunately. So realistically, the only time you see it being used is as a replacement for a penicillin because they've got anaphylaxis to penicillins or whatever, allergies to penicillin. Okay, so if, for example, I wanted to put somebody on IV flu clocks for cellulitis, but they get a rash from penicillin, I put them on kephazolin. If I wanted to do triple therapy, but they can't take uh, amoxicillin, I put them on kephazolin. Okay, straight substitute. Generation two, kephosporins, don't worry about it. Nobody uses them anymore. I think there was C-Claw, which came as a pink syrup that you know kids from the 90s might have had for colds and stuff when we didn't know much about antibiotics. Third generation, there's two really commonly used ones. One's oral, one's IV. What are they? Keftraxin. Yes, is the IV. What oral kephalosporin do you know about? Kephalexin. Kephalexin, that's right. So you can think of one as the oral equivalent of the other, or the IV equivalent of the other. So if they're really sick, they get keftraxin. If they're not so sick, they get kephalexin. Because kephalexin is also pretty well the only oral kephalosporin that you see these days being given, it's essentially a straight substitute for any situation that you'd want to give amoxyl. Okay, so again, dirty wound, dog bite, uh, otitis media, but they get a rash with penicillin, you'll see kephalexin being given. What is the other patient population where you see kephalexin given all the time? Uh, I'll give you a hint, it's when they come in with UTIs. Pregnant. Yes. Okay, so if you look at ETG, the first line therapy for uncomplicated UTI is oral trimethoprim unless pregnant, in which case you use kephalexin. And again, that falls into the exception of medical contraindication. They're pregnant, so they can't take it. I think technically they can take it, but I think safety category-wise, the kephalexin is much safer, so it's the gold standard. So that's the kephalosporins. Kephataxime is even more sensitive to a whole bunch more other gram-negative stuff. So the good thing about keftraxone is, for all intents and purposes, it kills pretty much everything. It's got such good gram-negative cover. So... Other than, you know, being pretty rest assured that the keftraxone will kill off any strep or staph, it will usually kill off most E. coli as well, and then a whole bunch of other gram negatives as well. So you can use it in a lot of cases as a substitute for if you were going to give three narrow spectrums, but for whatever exception to the rule, you can't. In answer to your question, uh, urosepsis, if you're worried about your kidneys, you can give keftraxone instead of the gen. Okay, that's not ideal because that will probably propagate more resistance than just giving the narrow spectrum gent. But at the same time, if you're worried that they're going to die faster because of their shit kidneys from the urosepsis, you give keftriaxone. And to be honest, that's actually what I do in real life. Old lady comes in with the urosepsis, I'll probably just put her on keftriaxone rather than amoxgen. Infectious diseases consultants will argue the toss with me, but you know, whatever. Keftriaxone, you also see commonly given for meningitis for a great number of reasons. One, because 
it will cover the things that you wanted to cover. And then also number two, you know, it's one of those situations where they're critically unwell and time's money and they could die if you guess with the wrong antibiotics while you're waiting for cultures. So hell, just give them keftriaxone. It'll cover a shit ton of the gram positives and gram negatives. So that's keftriaxone, kefataxim. I've pretty well only ever seen it being used for kids. And they tend to be septic kids, like really, really unwell kids. And they really don't want to muck around because it's a sick kid with, you know, a growing immune system. So they just go full guns blazing to the kefataxim. So that's where I see it most commonly in kids, kids with meningitis or kids where we don't know what's going on, but meningitis is still on the cards. They'll get kefataxim. The reason you don't see it more used than that is because obviously they're trying to keep it under lock and key so that the population doesn't get resistant and then we're truly in trouble. Okay. So that in a nutshell is your broad spectrums, the amoxyl and the kephalosporins. To finish off the chat, I just want to talk about quinolones which are essentially broad spectrum because by definition they cover both gram positives and gram negatives. And I want to talk about PIPTAS. Okay. So let's take the quinolones first. Essentially it's pretty pattern recognition. Basically if somebody comes in with dysentery, so I'm not talking about your garden variety gastro because your garden variety gastro, what do you do for them? Like literally just supportive care, isn't it? But if they give a good story for, uh, I've got fevers and lots of diarrhea and there's lots of blood in my diarrhea, I would be highly suspicious of dysentery and treat them so until proven otherwise. What quinolones do you know of? Yes, exactly right. So most commonly would be your ciprofloxacin and norfloxacin. So take your pick, flip a coin for either of those. If somebody comes in with that story, give them either oral flu- uh, ciprofloxacin or oral norfloxacin. And particularly if they say like, oh, this all happened after I ate some bad chicken that was left out in the sun for five days. Well then, yeah, definitely do it. If they say I've come back from a third world country and this is happening, definitely do it. Okay. And incidentally, that's what I give people for traveling. And this is a bit of a contentious issue. A lot of GPs say, no, nah, I don't want to give patients antibiotics willy-nilly to go traveling with overseas because they'll just use them willy-nilly. But in my book, like, I don't know, has anybody tried to see a doctor overseas? It's super expensive and the quality control is sort of depends on where you are, hey? So I usually give my patients a packet of Cipro to go overseas with, with clear instructions. Don't do it if you just have a cold or a bit of gastro, a bit of barley belly. That's just what happens, okay? But if you are legitimately high fevers, lots of diarrhea, shitting blood, fine, get going in the Cipro. And then if you have, you know, legitimately productive cough, high fevers, and you really think you go back to your pneumonia, fine, give the Cipro a go. That should cover it as well, okay? Other doctors will give Amoxil alone which is you know, still a broad spectrum, but narrower a spectrum to try to sort of not use the superflux and keep that on reserve. But that wouldn't necessarily cover your traveler's diarrhea cases. So that's why I give them the Cipro. You just got to warn them that Medicare doesn't pay for the Cipro. They'll pay for the Amoxyl because that's common as anything. The Cipro, they'll have to pay for themselves and it's like 40 or 50 bucks. The other common usage of the Quinolones, Rotlin, is basically complicated UTIs. So if they've got a niche market UTI that has not sensitive E. coli, because unfortunately there's a lot of postmenopausal ladies that just get recurrent UTIs and unfortunately that's just life and then they get resistant bugs and things like that and stuff stops working, the trimethoprim stops working, so unfortunately you've just got the quinolones. Uh, the other one is, you know, orchitis, orchitis. So if you've got complex genital urinary tract infections, then yes, the goal is ciprofloxacin or norfloxacin. People that are permanently catheterized, spinal patients, unfortunately, get lots of UTIs. 
they tend to get more and more resistant bugs because they have a foreign body in them all the time and get UTIs all the time. So then they tend to be a candidate as well for lots of Cipro and Norflox, unfortunately. Okay. So that's the quinolones. And then just end the conversation is Tazacin or Piptaz. Uh, it's a penicillin-based antibiotic, a broad-spectrum penicillin-based antibiotic, which is the penicillin and the Tazabactam essentially acts like the clavulanic acid and broadens the spectrum even more. Okay? It's great. It's like the silver bullet for all sorts of werewolves and vampires and whatnot. It kills everything. Okay? So, met call situation, septic shock, you'll find they'll just give them Tazacin. The other category I think you sort of touched on was diabetics. Unfortunately, a lot of diabetics get a lot of nasty infections, particularly they don't take care of themselves, and it'll get to the point where they just get resistant to literally everything known to man other than tazacin. So unfortunately, even though they're not potentially life-threateningly unwell, oh well, that's what the sensitivity say, that's what the sensitivity say. The final chapter in this is basically just a quick chat on what to do about penicillin allergies. Because you'll find most people that say they have penicillin allergies, number one, will not have a true allergy. They'll literally have gut upset with the amoxil. And you tell them that's not an allergy, that's just amoxil. That's just antibiotics. It's just a side effect. Thereafter, most of the other ones will tell you, I am allergic, but all I got was a rash. And then obviously the ones you have to watch out for is that small percentage of people that get anaphylaxis. If they have a penicillin allergy, you essentially can't really give them any of penicillin, fluclox, amoxil, or piptaz. If they get a rash, it would be reasonable in my book to give them a cephalosporin because that is technically not a penicillin. However, what's the relative danger still? Fantastic. How many people are predisposed to allergic reactions with cephalosporin if they get one with a fluclox? What percentage? 10-15. I think some studies say 10 to 30, which I just don't believe. Like, I just don't believe that three out of 10 people that I give cephalosporin for will get a rash. Anyway, yeah, I think it's more like 10 to 15. I actually even wonder whether it's even less than that. Because, and again, don't take this part as gospel, but I've never had a person with a rash with penicillin get anaphylactic with the cephalosporin. So I am usually pretty okay with if they say, oh, I'm allergic to penicillin, I'll usually say, fine, take some cephalexin for your infection. Uh, if I'm feeling particularly superstitious, I'll tell them to sit in a chair in my waiting room uh, for the next half an hour because if it's going to be anaphylaxis, it will happen in half an hour. <laughs> Otherwise, usually I just say, like, why don't you head off, take the uh, cephalexin. It's not a penicillin. If you get a rash with it, stop immediately and let me know. Okay. I would not roll those dice, obviously, if it's an anaphylaxis or documented anaphylaxis with penicillin. And unfortunately, then it just gets a bit funny. If you wanted to treat it with orals, then you probably would have to look to a quinolone. Actually, sorry, doesn't get funny. The answer is quinolones. Okay, so it'd be reasonable to use a quinolone oral if they're documented anaphylaxis to oral flu clots, but you want to treat an infected wound. If they're life-threatening situation, but anaphylactic to penicillin, Instead of using the Piptaz, I would probably use Moxifloxacin IV. And I think that's only happened once in my career when I've had to call IV and say, they're anaphylactic to penicillins, but they're dying. What would you recommend? They say IV, Moxifloxacin. There's a whole nother other class of broad spectrum niche market kill everything drugs, which we call the ICU. Yes, the penems. Thank you. Meropenem, there's one starting with I as well. That's your other option. So they're non-penicillin based and you could give, yeah. So you can give them to someone that's allergic to penicillin. Correct, because it's not penicillin-based and I don't think there's any crossover. 
all the Penum ones. Don't worry too much about them. Just treat them as sort of a, a substitute for the Tazabactam, Pipacillin. Just kills everything. But don't worry, you're probably not allowed to use it anyway unless you work in ICU, in which case you can do whatever you want or ID specifically tells you to do that. The only times I've seen it are literally for ICU patients or people where everything else, they're like diabetic, they get lots of infections and everything else is resistant other than the penems. Cool. You've been listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Lamb. Music by Nathan Huiyi. Stop it and say she still is mine.